1: That's audible.com/wonderypod or text wonderypod to 500 500.
2: It's Sunday, November 10th. I'm Margaret Brennan in the nation's capital, and this is Face the Nation. President Trump and the First Lady spent Saturday afternoon enjoying one of America's favorite fall pastimes, a college football showdown between two red state rivals, Alabama and LSU. With the first round of open impeachment hearings set to begin Wednesday, House Democrats began laying out their case to impeach the president by releasing thousands of pages of behind-closed-doors testimony detailing his administration's attempt to convince Ukraine to investigate the Bidens in exchange for military aid. President Trump is sticking to his claim that he's done nothing wrong.
3: It's all about the transcript. they having people I never
2: even heard of some of these people. I don't know who they are. Republicans put out their own wish list of witnesses, including the whistleblower and Hunter Biden. But they're having a tougher time coming up with a line of defense for Mr. Trump.
4: Hold on, we have Mark Meadows right here, Congressman Meadows. Can we talk a lot? So he he's walking by right now. But Republicans are really
2: struggling to defend the president. Okay, great. Not struggling on uh, anything? Okay, so, so
5: Congressman. The Republicans are not struggling on anything.
2: Here's the president's top ally in the Senate, Lindsey Graham.
4: What I can tell you about the Trump policy toward the Ukraine, it was incoherent. It depends on
6: who you talk to. They seem to be incapable of forming a quid pro quo.
2: And this from Louisiana Senator John uh. Kennedy.
6: In terms of the quid pro quo, there are perfectly appropriate quid pro quos and there are inappropriate quid pro quos.
2: We'll talk with Senator Kennedy as well as a Democrat from the House Intelligence Committee, California's Eric Swalwell. There is another big event in Washington Wednesday. Turkey's President Erdogan will visit the White House. We'll talk with the new national security advisor, Robert O'Brien. Plus, former New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg is exploring a presidential run. But is America ready for another New York billionaire in the White House? Neither the candidates. So
6: tonight, we say to Michael Bloomberg and other
1: billionaires, sorry, you ain't gonna buy this election
2: nor the Democratic primary voters are convinced.
3: Have you heard about Michael Bloomberg
5: possibly entering? The-
7: yes, I'm just just appalled. And I think he was a Republican at one time and then turned Democrat. All that,
2: plus analysis on News of the Week is just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning, and welcome to Face the Nation. It's a big week here in Washington, so we want to get quickly to our very first guest, Republican Senator John Kennedy, who joins us this morning from Kenner, Louisiana. Good morning, Senator, and congrats on the big win.
6: Thank you, Margaret. It was a great game. I'm proud for our of our youngsters, but Alabama played a great game, too.
2: <laughs> very generous of you there. Uh, I want to quickly get to the issue at hand. You heard... Well, as no, our- I meant it. Actually, I meant it. I'm glad. Um, In our show open, uh, you heard uh, a quote from yourself talking about what is appropriate and Mm -hmm. inappropriate in terms of quid pro quos. If a quid pro quo was shown to be for the president's own political benefit, is that appropriate? The
6: the quid pro quo, in my judgment, is a red herring. Here, Here are the two possible scenarios. Number one, the president asked for an investigation of a political rival. Number two, the president asked for an investigation of possible corruption by someone who happens to be a political rival. The latter would be in the national interest. The former would be in the president's parochial interest and would be over the line. I think this case is going to come down to uh, the president's intent, um His motive, uh, did he have a culpable state of mind? For me, Margaret, there are only two relevant questions that need to be answered. Why did the president ask for an investigation?
7: Mm -hmm.
6: And number two, and this is inextricably linked to the first question, what did Mr. Hunter Biden do for the money?
2: Well, I want to ask you now, there have been more than 2,500 pages of sworn testimony that have been released to the public. Have you read any of those depositions? Mm -hmm.
6: I've read some, but uh, any lawyer, in my judgment, who knows a law book from a J. Krug catalog knows that a, a, a sterile transcript is no substitute for live witnesses.
2: Okay. And I well, thought, I want to ask you Pelosi, specific, so I just want to ask you specifically because of the point you're making mm-hmm. in terms of differentiating um, intent, motive, and, and culpable state of mind. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, Mm -hmm. a decorated army officer who gave sworn testimony. It was released this week. He currently works at the White House. Listened to President Trump's call with the Ukrainian president. And he testified, quote, there was no doubt that the president was seeking political investigations of political rivals. Mm -hmm. So is it appropriate to ask foreign governments to investigate Americans?
6: Well, it depends on the circumstances. Um, I'm not going to go through the two scenarios that I just gave you, but it depends on the circumstances. And there is there. Um, I, I would say this about the transcript. I can comment on the gentleman's testimony if you let me hear his live testimony. Let me hear the cross-examination. Let me judge his credibility. Let me judge his body language and also allow the opposing party to call their own witnesses in rebuttal that's that's due process mm-hmm. not uh not only allowing the witnesses you want as the chairman has done, and then leaking selective portions of it to friendly members of the media who lap it up like a puppy
2: well, all the depositions that that I'm quoting from are now publicly released, so um, it was now, the but government they are. that released but,
6: before right. when they were trying but before when they were trying to uh, establish the narrative with the American people, uh, they were selectively leaking. And, well, and that's now what we're matters, moving here, into Margaret. public. The Ameri-
2: right. Well, now the case has got to be made I'm to sorry? the American public. Now the case has to be made to the American public in these public hearings. So is there anything that you could hear from Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, if and when he's called to testify, that would uh, lead you to ever vote for the removal of the president?
6: Well, again, I've got to hear. I've got to hear the testimony. So that you, means you, maybe if you want to, ass- if you, ass- if you, ass- if you, ass- if you, ass- uh, if you would try to assess how a trial is going for our, for a defendant, you don't just listen to the lawyer's opening statements, and you don't just read the transcript. You sit there and listen to all the testimony, the cross examination, and the context.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: And I, th- I think. I think that that Speaker Pelosi's decision and Adam Schiff's decision to prevent the Republicans from calling their own witnesses in the live testimony is just doubling down on stupid. Uh, The American people, I think, are going to look at this and go, I get it. They're going to give the president a fair and impartial firing squad.
2: And and that's not due process. But you're not suggesting here that the witnesses, like Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, lack credibility?
6: I don't know. I can't. I wasn't allowed to hear them. What well, I am telling you is that it, if it can be demonstrated that the president asked for and, and had the requisite state of mind, that the president asked for an investigation of a political rival, that's over the line. Okay. But if he asked for an investigation of possible corruption by someone who happens to be a political rival, that's not over the line.
2: So over the line, does that mean impeachable? Yeah, uh, yeah, probably. So there is something you um, could hear that could a- potentially persuade you to vote for removal? Well, I can't a-
6: a- answer that, Margaret, because that, 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 that encompasses all possible scenarios. That's like asking me, if I didn't go fishing Saturday, how many fish will I have caught? All I'm saying is that, that, that it ought to be fair. It ought to be public. I read somewhere that democracy dies in darkness. It ought to be public. Both sides ought to be call, able to call their witnesses in front of God and country and the American people mm-hmm. um, and then let the American people decide. And, and the president and his counsel should be allowed to participate. Now, I think that would be fair. And then I, I will happily judge the uh, evidence. But you can't limit the witnesses, as mm-hmm. Chairman Schiff and Speaker Pelosi's are doing, uh, selectively leak portions of right. the transcript that favor your opinion to friendly members of the press who lap it up like a puppy. I don't think any fair-minded person in the Milky Way believes that Speaker Pelosi mm -hmm. or Chairman Schiff are impartial here. Well, we look forward
2: to the trial trial in the Senate and then seeing uh, what you decide to do. Senator, thank you for joining us. Um, And the question is, of course, with our next guest, the assumption, Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell joins us now, is that when it goes from... Your committee from these hearings we're about to begin before House intelligence that there will be articles of impeachment voted on that will pass the Democratic-controlled House and then end up uh, in the other side of the court uh, in front of Senator Kennedy there. Um, There will be 13 Democrats, nine Republicans, who get to ask questions uh, in this next round of three diplomats in the coming days. What is going to be different about this? I mean, yeah, cameras are in the room, but is this just show?
8: Good morning, Margaret. It's important that the president has due process, and evidence is not a conclusion. We have enough evidence from the depositions that we've done to warrant bringing this forward, evidence of an extortion scheme using taxpayer dollars to ask a foreign government to investigate the president's opponent. But it's important that these witnesses raise their right hands and take questions from both Republicans and Democrats. The president is going to get that. It's important that the Republicans be afforded the opportunity to suggest witnesses that we should call and that we determine whether that is relevant. That that you know, The facts are just as important right. as the process behind the facts as far as what if anything goes over to the but Senate. But do
2: you expect anything new from these testimonies, or is it going to be a recitation of what we can read in these depositions already?
8: These witnesses have been fairly consistent, uh, and for the most part, they've not been coordinating or talking to. Each other, but again, this is America, and we don't just have you know railroading of justice. These witnesses, you know, should come public, and mm-hmm. you know the American people should judge for themselves as well as we will as to you know what happened.
2: Well, on the issue of witnesses that Senator Kennedy was talking about, um, the, the Republican Party put forward yesterday a list of suggested witnesses they would like to see called. Um, uh, on there, Hunter Biden and his business partner. Is it safe to say they will never come before the House Intelligence Committee?
8: Well, as Chairman Schiff has said, we're not going to go back in time and revisit conspiracy theories that are implicated in the president's call. And, you know, it was former Secretary of Homeland Security Tom Bossert who told Jake Tapper a couple of weeks ago that he was telling the president that much of what the president alleged in that phone call to President Zelensky about the Ukrainians involved mm-hmm. in 2016 was just nonsense. And so we don't want to revisit conspiracy theories. If people have relevant information to this investigation and the president's conduct, of course, we want to hear from
2: them. So that's no to the Bidens. I'll is leave that to I the
8: mean. chairman. I don't okay. see any relevancy with the Bidens. There's no evidence that any imp- anything improper has happened. And witnesses have been asked about the Bidens and said that Vice President Biden, in every way, Mm -hmm. these witnesses and the way they worked with him conducted himself with integrity. Uh,
2: One member of the National Security Council, Tim Morrison, was on the Republican list. Uh, Kurt Volker, the former U.S. envoy to Ukraine. Is it safe to assume they will be before your committee? You know,
8: we're going to handle that this week, uh, you know, taking up the Republican witness list. And we're going to be fair about it because, again, the fairness behind the process is just as important as the facts.
2: Um, You wrote Talking about the fairness of the process, one of the things that gets criticized by Republicans of Democrats is that the outcome is presupposed. Yeah. And if you just look back at your own record, yeah. back to the spring, you were calling for impeachment. You wrote an op-ed yeah. in June calling for impeachment. That was before this whistleblower ever came to light. You know what's interesting. So about- how can yeah. that? look fair. How can yeah. that be fair?
8: What's interesting about the op-ed I wrote. Uh, I wrote it in response to the president's interview with George Stephanopoulos, where he said if he was offered again dirt on an, a political opponent from a foreign power, he would again take it. I didn't know when I wrote that op-ed that he was already engaging in this manner with the Ukrainians. But his prior conduct with the Russians suggested that he might do that, which is why I thought at that time, we have an upcoming election. We want it to be pure and one that is above you know, any questions. And this President you know needs to be held accountable for his actions
2: uh, former national security advisor John Bolton uh, he has not been sabed Uh mm-hmm. he's deferring to a court to sort of decide who he needs to listen to the, the White House who tells him not to comply, mm-hmm. or Congress who has asked him to come and answer questions why don't you think you need to hear from him? Why can't you wait until December until a court would decide?
8: We'd like to hear from him, uh, but we've heard from three of his deputies who have provided consistent testimony about what was going on in this shakedown scheme. We've asked him to come in, but the White House has told him not to come in, and we're not going to chase witnesses to the courts, because even if a court ruled in December that he has to come in, it would be be appealed to a circuit court of appeals, and then Mm -hmm. ultimately up to the Supreme Court. We don't have time with an upcoming election that potentially could be compromised by the president's conduct. We need to you know, move expeditiously but fairly on what we have now.
2: But why expeditiously? Why can't you just wait a few weeks?
8: Well, it's not a few weeks. It could be all the way up to a year. And we see this as a tactic by the administration to obstruct our investigation. We also believe... If the president believed that John Bolton or Mick Mm -hmm. Mulvaney could offer testimony that would show that he's innocent, he would send them in uh, on horses to our committee to testify. They can't, which is the reason we believe he's obstructing, which goes to a consciousness of guilt.
2: The uh, House Republicans have sort of reshuffled their deck ahead of these hearings and added Congressman Jim Jordan uh, to the committee. And... I'm wondering what you think that will do to these public hearings this week. I mean, what will this change?
8: You know, they, they could put Johnny Cochran uh, on their side to ask questions. It's not going to change the facts of this case. Now, if there are going to be stunts, uh, you're going to see, again, those stunts will be used by the American people against them to show a consciousness of guilt and a lack of seriousness. I think this is a very serious investigation. This is an opportunity for my Republican colleagues to reset and recognize also They're not the public defenders for the president. They don't have to defend him at all costs. They can actually approach this objectively, give him a fair process, ask the right questions, and then make a judgment on the facts. But this is not a time for stunts.
2: I want to ask you, you had been a presidential uh, race contender for 2020. We saw Michael Bloomberg say he may uh, jump into the race, isn't officially declared. What do you think that does to the lineup?
8: It it gives the voters more options, but look, I, I think options are good. And whoever emerges from this will be battle tested. It's going to flush out weaknesses, this large field. And whoever emerges is going to be a very strong candidate to take on and defeat Donald Trump if he's their nominee next year.
2: All right. So thank you very much. My pleasure. We'll be back in one minute with the new National Security Advisor to President Trump, Ambassador Robert O'Brien. Stay with us. It's just ahead. This week, Turkey's president will be welcomed at the White House. It will be the first meeting since Turkey defied the U.S. by invading Syria, and President Trump abruptly ordered American troops out of that country. Since then, President Trump has reversed course, deciding to keep some 700 troops on the ground there, down from a total of 1,200 in all of Syria. CBS News foreign correspondent Charlie Daggett is in northeast Syria with an update on their mission.
3: US troops on patrol here today, making their presence known in this region. As we've watched them repositioning around oil facilities, their reach is nearing what it was before President Trump's order to withdraw last month. Right beside their allies, the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces in the ongoing fight against ISIS. And while some may argue it's time to bring the troops home, top Kurdish commander Maslum Kobani told us, not just yet. What is your message to them? With the Americans, we started a project together. We are partners, he said. Once this job is done, they can leave. We don't want the Americans to stay here for 400 years. But it is a job that has become much harder in this carved-up and congested region. We saw Kurdish protesters pelt a joint Turkish-Russian convoy passing right through the same territory patrolled today by U.S. forces. Turkey and Kurdish forces have accused each other of ceasefire violations. And complicating matters further, the Syrian regime has clashed with Turkish troops. None of this would have happened had President Trump not given Turkey the green light to launch its assault on the Kurds in the first place. Can America ever repair the damage that's been done? General Kobani said if the Americans break their promise again, the trust will be gone forever. From the top down, ask anybody here whether they can now trust President Trump and they'll say, it's not like we have any choice. This volatile region is now on a knife edge as Turkey's president heads to Washington this week.
2: That's our Charlie Daggett reporting from northeast Syria. Joining us now to weigh in on Syria and more is the president's national security advisor, Robert O'Brien. Good morning to you, Mr. Ambassador. Good morning, Margaret. Uh, You just heard... Charlie, lay out a very complicated landscape. Diplomacy means talking to your friends and to your enemies, having difficult conversations. But you just heard everything Charlie laid out. I mean, Erdogan defied the United States by invading Syria. He's buying Russian-made weapons. He's doing everything you're telling him not to. Why is he getting rewarded for bad behavior?
9: Well, let me just point out, Margaret, that that you got it right, and unfortunately Charlie got it wrong. When Charlie said we green-lighted the invasion of Syria, Syria, that's just absolutely false. Uh, It didn't happen. Well, the the president made it very clear that, that Turkey shouldn't go in. He even said if you go in, I may have to obliterate your economy. He did it on Twitter. He did it... Uh, on the phone, he did it in a letter that uh, was a very strongly worded letter. Uh, so the so the uh, the idea that the U.S. somehow greenlighted Turkey's military operation that's that's just simply false, and, and the American people shouldn't shouldn't believe that. Now, what he did do, we had 28 Green Berets who were at a forward operating post on the border that would have been cr- caught in a crossfire between 15,000 Turkish troops and armor and and seven or eight thousand YPG SDF troops. And the president was not Kurdish forces. Correct. And and, and the president was not going to leave those young men in in harm's way uh, in a crossfire. And so he pulled those those troops out because, look, it's ultimately it's it's the president who has to call the families. It's the president who has to go to Dover uh, if something happens. But
2: that's why the question is relevant. Why reward that bad behavior? This is a NATO ally who is putting U.S. troops at risk, who is putting U.S. allies at risk.
9: Well, we're not rewarding the behavior. The president promptly put on sanctions. Uh, and, and then he, and, he took them off. Well, he did because the Turks agreed to a ceasefire. And, mm-hmm. and Turkey said they wouldn't agree to a ceasefire. The president dispatched me and a number of top diplomats, David Satterfield, Jim Jeffrey, and then then dispatched the secretary of state and the vice president to Ankara. And in 24 hours, uh, we had a ceasefire. And by the way, that was a ceasefire that the Kurdish forces had a lot of input into. We we wanted to save lives. We wanted to save Turkish lives. And keep in mind, there were Turkish civilians being killed and, and rocketed by the Kurds. There were Kurdish uh, folks being killed, including Turkish soldiers. We got a ceasefire, and, and in a short amount of time, we got those Kurdish soldiers evacuated to, to a safe area. Uh, so I think the Kurds appreciated the ceasefire. I think the Turks did as well. And that was a, a real diplomatic coup from the president because, he, because of his tough line.
2: Do you recognize that there were war crimes committed?
9: Look, it, it, the, some of the things that we've seen are very disturbing. By and, Turkey and, and, and Turkish-supported well, militias. Uh, it may be the Turkish-supported militias. Turkey has assured us that those are being investigated. We're very concerned about those issues, the war crimes issues. We're watching them. We're monitoring them very closely. There is no place for genocide, for ethnic cleansing, for war crimes in the 21st century. The U.S. won't stand by for it, and, uh, and we've made that position very clear to the Turks.
2: If Congress passes any of the at least three sanctions bills on Turkey that are going to get bipartisan support. Will the president veto all of them?
9: Look, we'll have to see what, what happens this week with our meetings with President Erdogan. I mean, there, there are things that Turkey's a member of NATO. Uh, Turkey plays a very important geopolitical role for for our, our friends in Europe, for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they sit astride the Bosphorus, the strait right. that goes into the Black Sea. We have NATO allies, Romania and Bulgaria, that are Black Sea powers. So, so losing Turkey as an ally is not something that's good for, the Europe, for Europe or for the United States. Let's and, talk. And, and we're, and we're going we're to work on making sure that uh, yeah. we can do our very best to keep them as, as a NATO
4: member.
2: More to talk about in your portfolio in a moment. We have to take a break. We'll be right back.
4: Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
1: Senator Joseph R. McCarthy, Republican of Wisconsin, faced the nation with correspondents across the country questioning him. Live from Indianapolis, New York City, and also here in Washington. Here's the moderator of Face the Nation, Ted Koop. How do you do?
6: And welcome to Face the Nation.
2: That was the very first episode of Face the Nation 65 years ago this week. And as you can see, we had a couple of technical glitches right at the start. Technology has certainly changed, but our commitment here at Face the Nation has not. For 65 years, we've done our best to give our viewers not only the news they need to know, but to help educate and give them context about what's important and why in a fair, straightforward way. We'll have more thoughts on our mission here at Face the Nation over the years in our next half hour.
3: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more.
2: Welcome back to Face the Nation. We continue our conversation with Ambassador Robert O'Brien, National Security Advisor to President Trump. Um, I, I want to pick up on this idea uh, where we left it with Turkey coming, and they are NATO allies. you emphasized. One of our NATO allies, uh, the French President Emmanuel Macron, said this week that NATO is suffering a brain death because of lack of American support and resolve. From What he's seeing and then what we're seeing with Turkey causing these cracks in the alliance, I mean, you must be very concerned. Is that why you've brought the NATO Secretary General to the White House this week as well?
9: Well, we have a NATO summit coming up uh, the 3rd and 4th of December, so we'll be in London for that summit. I I think it's going to be a good summit between NATO allies. NATO is an important alliance to us. But, look, I think the cracks that have formed in the alliance are because we have members of the alliance that aren't paying their fair share, that aren't spending money on defense. I mean the the United States taxpayer and, and the taxpayer of eight of the NATO country taxpayers of eight of the NATO countries that are spending their two percent on national defense. We spend over four percent. They're doing the right things. But there are a bunch of countries, including Germany and others, that, that aren't paying their fair share. It's not it's not right for the American taxpayer to have to defend these countries that don't want to defend themselves. So so the president has been very, very strong on this issue. There's been $100 billion in new NATO defense spending since he took office. That's mm-hmm. a great accomplishment of President Trump. I think the Americans are happy about it, and I think most Europeans are happy about it.
2: Well, I mean, well, Macron was voicing out loud some real concerns. And if you look at what Turkey has done, as you just described, you thought that there was a potential NATO ally would fire on the United States, intentionally or not, in Syria. You've also seen Turkey go ahead and buy... Russian-made weapons in defiance of NATO.
9: Yeah, we're we're very upset about that. And, can and we, can you get
2: behind sanctions on them? Well, I mean, they're well, supposed to be triggered by Congress.
9: Well, look, look. If the if Turkey doesn't get rid of the S four hundred, I mean, there will likely be sanctions. The cats of sanctions will will pass com- Congress with an overwhelming bipartisan majority. And Turkey will feel the impact of those sanctions. We've we've made that very clear to President Erdogan. There's no place in NATO for the S-400. There's no place in NATO for significant Russian military purchases. That's a a message that the president will deliver to him very clearly when he's here in Washington.
2: I know you're just back from Asia. Um, The president says he wants to meet with Xi Jinping and possibly get a trade deal by December. Is that a hard date? On the calendar? Uh, Look,
9: there's no deadline. We want to get a good deal. And I think we're very close to getting a phase one trade deal. And it will be the first time that we've had a a trade deal where China has actually respected uh, the United States and and hasn't stole our intellectual property, has been fair and reciprocal in trade. So if we can get a a good deal, then we'll get a good deal. I think we're very close. And I think if there is a deal, the President and President Xi will, will get together and sign it. Look, we want great relations with China. But this is the first President that stood up to China. That, that has been, you know, stealing American intellectual property, not allowing American companies to have access to Chinese markets, uh, engaging in unfair trade practices, that has to come to an end because the Chinese have been using that to fill, to, to, to fund one of the most massive military buildups in history. Right. And, 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 you know, that has to come to a stop.
2: Well, as I just said, you're back from Asia. You've been raising concerns about China's militarization, particularly of the South China Sea. I mean, this only seems to be escalating militarily. Well, I don't
9: think it's escalating militarily. I think that the president put tariffs on on China. We've always, and 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 those tariffs have led the Chinese to the negotiating table. And I think we're going to get a pretty good deal for the American people, especially for the American farmers, for owners of intellectual property. So you
2: see a trade deal going ahead, and what you're talking about in terms of militarization in the South China Sea, that kind of thing is not going to complicate.
9: Look, we're we're going to still stand up, and I I did at the ASEAN summit, at the East Asia summit, I made it very clear that that just because one country is big and other countries are small in the region, the bigger countries shouldn't bully the smaller countries and, and take their resources, whether they're fishery resources or oil and gas resources. And the U.S. Navy will continue to have freedom of, op- of navigation operations through the South China Sea, this nine dash line or cow's tongue that the Chinese have mm-hmm. drawn around the entire South China Sea, which is a major swath of the Pacific Ocean, and claimed it as internal waters as if it was Lake Tahoe or something, that just can't stand. The United States Navy won't put up with it. The, the countries in the region's, region won't put up with it. And, and all of those countries, were, with, with very few exceptions, were grateful because that America is standing up for them, standing up for their resource patrimony. That's the future for their kids and their grandkids, or the oil and gas and the fisheries and the minerals off their shores. China shouldn't be allowed to take it just because they're bigger.
2: You um, on Ukraine, I know you were not at the White House when this July 25th phone call happened that is now at the heart of this impeachment inquiry, but you are now part of Ukraine policymaking. Uh, you heard Senator Graham at the top of the program say the policy is completely incoherent. Will the U.S. continue lethal military aid to Ukraine until Russia backs out of Crimea? And stops supporting separatists in Ukraine.
9: Well, look, I think you put your finger on the most most important issue, and that's lethal military aid. I was in Ukraine in 2014. I was there to observe the elections in Ukraine. I was there as part of a bipartisan election observation mission. And I had young Ukrainian soldiers and young Ukrainians come up to me and say, why won't the U.S., the arsenal of democracy, send us lethal aid? You're sending us blankets and MREs. Why won't President Obama send us military aid? And there there was no military aid going to to the Ukrainians under the the, the Obama-Biden administration. Mm -hmm. Uh, When President Trump got into office, he sent military aid. So I think what people ought to be focusing on is the president has been helping the, the Ukrainians defend themselves by sending them lethal, lethal military aid to stand up to the Russians. That's the real story that's been but lost. Is the, all of is the imp-
2: policy, though, that, that that lethal aid will continue until Russia stops backing separatists? And, and trying to annex parts of Ukraine. Well,
9: I, I'm not getting into hypotheticals about what could happen down the road. I mean, hopefully Russia and Ukraine can get along and there can be some sort of a peace treaty and, and an agreement between them. So I'm not going to commit the United States to what we're going to do forever. But but for right now, we're, sent, we're, we're the first administration. President mm-hmm. Trump is the first president to send lethal military aid to Ukraine. I think it's very important. And I think that's something that's been lost in, in all the hullabaloo about the, uh, about the telephone call. And, and one other thing I'd say about this, I've been with President Trump in two dozen conversations, either in person or on the phone with foreign leaders. And if the American people could be on those phone calls, they'd be extraordinarily proud of the president, how he represents America, the cordiality that he he has with world Mm -hmm. leaders, but also the tough message that he has to to protect U.S. interests. I mean, they'd be proud of what their president does in those meetings with foreign leaders.
2: Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, who has testified under oath, is serving on the National Security Council currently. Will he continue to work for you despite testifying against the president?
9: Well, well, look, one of the things that I've talked about is that we're streamlining the National Security Council. It got bloated to like 236 people, from up from 100 in the Bush administration under President Obama. We're streamlining the National Security Council. There are people that are detailed from different departments and agencies. My understanding is uh, that uh, Colonel Vindman is, uh, is detailed from the Department of Defense. So everyone who's detailed at the NSC, people are going to start going back to their own departments, and we'll mm-hmm. bring in new folks, but we're going to get that number down to around 100 people. That's what it was under uh, Condoleezza Rice. She came and met with me. I've met with a number of my successors. Right. We don't need to recreate the Department of Defense, the Department of State, the Department of Homeland Security over at the White House. We've got great diplomats and soldiers and, and folks that, can, that do that work for us in the departments.
2: Just to button that up, though, uh, you are saying Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel Venman is scheduled to rotate out. You are not suggesting in any way that there will be retaliation against him.
9: I, I, I never retaliate against anyone. So, the, the, it's but his like, time is coming the, to the an end. There, there will be a point for for everybody who's detailed there okay. uh, that their time that their detail will come to an end. They'll go back to their agency, and what we want them to do is take the experience and skills they learned at the White House, take it back to their departments and agencies, and and, and do an even better job there. And and so we're we're grateful that we can have these detailees come in. And they'll come spend the year a year or year, you know, maybe a little bit more at the White House and then mm-hmm. they'll go back to their agency and, and they'll do a better job at their agency.
2: All right.
10: Thank you very much. House. Thank Ambassador you, for having Brian, me, for Margaret. joining
2: us. Appreciate it. We'll be right back with our panel. Don't go away.
11: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
2: We turn now to some political analysis from our panel. Stephen Hayes is the editor of The Dispatch and a Fox News contributor. Margaret Taleb is the White House and politics editor at Axios. Jeffrey Goldberg is the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. And Antoine Seawright is a Democratic strategist and CBS News contributor. Good to have you all here. Good to be here. Uh, Impeachment seems to be sucking the oxygen out of everything here in Washington. Stephen, I want to... Begin with you, because I know you think that this is a bad week for Republicans, but you don't think outside the beltway this is resonating.
12: I don't. I don't think it's really resonating. If you look at the way that Republicans in Congress are reacting to this, it's almost with a shrug of the shoulders. We we saw these transcripts come out. If you spent time reading the 2000 plus pages of the transcripts, tremendously damaging to the argument that Republicans have made for the past six weeks in defense of the president. One by one by one, you saw all of these defenses of the president on substance fall away, where it's clear that there was this quid pro quo that Democrats and others have been alleging. Republicans don't have an answer for it, as I think was, was evident in your interview with Senator Kennedy.
2: He said it depends on the kind of quid pro quo.
12: Yeah, I mean, he, he sketched out this scenario where he had, on the one hand, the, the president might have been doing this because he has some vague interest in corruption broadly. But you have to st- take a step back and think about what that means. I mean, this is a president who has had friendly relations with leaders of Tremendously corrupt countries, whether you're talking about Egypt or Russia or Saudi Arabia or Turkey, who wants to bring troops home, who's an America firster, but he suddenly had such an interest in corruption in this one country, in Ukraine, that he sent his personal attorney to conduct investigations that happened to overlap, coincidentally, with the interests, his political interests, in, in that they were investigating two of his chief political rivals. It doesn't even pass the laugh test.
2: So, Margaret, why then is that not more clear to the public? If it's so clear, as Stephen laid out there, is it that what these public hearings will change?
7: Well, uh, the public hearings can only change people's minds if people watch the public hearings and are engaged in them or read about them. And I think uh, it's pretty clear from the early weeks of this that, that President Trump's base is not shaken or uh, thwarted by this. Uh, and so really the issue is the group we're going to be hearing a lot about in the next several months, which is the suburban voters, right? These are the, you, if you call the moderate voters or swing voters or suburban voters, somewhere in that circle is, is this group of people. Um, we saw the relevance of suburban voters in Virginia in the elections, perhaps to some extent in Kentucky, and... This is the group that uh, both Democrats and President Trump are now going to be fighting for because they are the people who are uh, engaged in, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in sort of the daily business that involves paying attention to more details like this. And uh, they are the people who are most likely to be at a workstation, at work with the TV on, absorbing the contents of this, trying to figure out whether they are uncomfortable enough about it that they won't vote for President Trump twice.
2: Antoine, how do Democrats avoid... What happened with the Robert Mueller hearings, where there was this big buildup and the idea that if he testifies publicly, he'll describe in vivid detail what people didn't bother to read in print? How is this going to be different?
10: Uh, I think we have to first come to the realization that Donald Trump and his disciples have no interest in having a relationship with the truth, regardless of whether it's public or whether they actually read it and can see it. Number two, I think Democrats have to block and tackle, block out this arguments or this distraction that the Republicans want to draw them into and really tackle the issues that matter to the American people while they also pass legislation that they promised the American people in 2018 and remind people that it's the Senate, is the holdup, is the problem, and everything goes to McComb's graveyard to die. If we fail to do that, we will be sentenced again to two years in the hard time as the minority party. Do you think it's going well? it's hard to say. Look, here's what I do know. The Republicans uh, demonstrated what I believe to be a political pump fake about transparency during this process when you had 47 or 48 members of their conference a part of these hearings. Now they're public and you have leaders like Senator Graham and others who want to press the ignore button on the fact they're going to be transparent and essentially they're saying regardless of what comes out no matter who says it, like a decorated uh, military official it's not true because it's anti Donald Trump. And we've seen this movie before. And that's why I think Democrats have to stay focused on the things that matter outside the bubble.
2: Jeffrey, who's actually winning on the messaging here and convincing the American public? Because that's what these public hearings are going to be focused on.
5: I think it's actually, this sounds very journalistic, but I think it's too early to tell. Um, We don't know what dynamic we we enter when we actually see these people live in front of the cameras and how many people are watching and how convincing it is. I mean, on the one hand, uh, we'll know the answer to that question, I think. Not so much, I mean, we'll know it when we see what people in the suburbs feel about it. We'll also really know the answer if we see Republicans become less cohesive. If there's one person, uh, one person with influence in the Republican Party uh, on the Hill who says, you know what? The emperor really doesn't have his clothes mm-hmm. on. Um, that could uh, sort of break this open a little bit because all of us, I think, up here talk to Republicans on the Hill who privately say this is a disaster, a moral disaster, a political disaster, an ethical disaster, and they're just holding on and they're coming up with these talking points that, mm-hmm. that you saw on your show today. Uh, but there's a belief, and maybe this is an over-optimistic belief on the part of Trump's opponents, that there are people there who will say enough is enough. When they hear it from, as you say, a mm-hmm. decorated war veteran, this is actually what happened. When they hear it from from serious professionals in the State Department, they might just say
10: enough. But, but Margaret, here's the one thing Democrats and, and Republicans agree on, mm-hmm. the interest of national security. And I think if Democrats use that as their North Star or their foundation about this being about national security in the future of this country, I think that is the point that no one can argue.
2: Well, in the meantime, the the split screen uh, will be these hearings happening in Capitol Hill while the president is meeting with another world leader that he is dealing with national security. I I was pressing, uh, Jeffrey, the national security advisor, on why Turkey's leader deserves the honor of walking into the White House. (laughs) <laughs> and after after listing all of the things that Turkey has done wrong.
5: Right. And and as you know, there's a hope in Washington that simply that Erdogan leaves without having his bodyguards beat up people, as because happened that's the last what happened. time. We have lower standards for this visit than we usually have, which is like, let's not, not have street violence associated with this visit. No, this the, 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 the reception of Erdogan this week doesn't make any sense from a national security perspective. Are you rewarding? Remember, we always talk about rewarding people with an Oval Office visit. Is this the person? Who deserves an oval office visit? No, uh, of course not. But nothing is particularly coherent in our national security strategy right now. So it makes as much sense as anything else in this kind of topsy-turvy world in which we live.
2: You were referring to in 2017 when American protesters were beaten up. There are U.S. marshals arrest warrants out right. for some of Turkey's, the uh, Erdogan's bodyguards. Right. We'll see if they show up on this visit. <laughs> um, we'll be back in a moment with a lot more from our panel. Don't go away. And we're back with more from our political panel. Uh, Stephen, I want to start off with you. The Journal has an op-ed. And, you know, their op-ed pages are often thought to be fairly conservative. So when they say Bloomberg, water's warm, jump right in uh, to Michael Bloomberg suggesting he get into this 2020 race and that it might be a good idea. Um, are, should Democrats be skeptical of that somewhat in dorm store? trick.
12: It is a little trick. Look, I think Democrats probably should be skeptical of Michael Bloomberg for for a number of reasons, most especially because he's done this before. I mean, we've had how many head fakes from Michael Bloomberg? And he's also, you know, he was Democrat, Republican, independent. He sort of covered the gamut. And I think you're hearing this from people like Elizabeth Warren, people like Bernie Sanders, who I think are more in touch with the, the sort of uh, base of the Democratic Party, that this is not the, the Democratic savior that, that people but think But is he is. the
2: kind of candidate who could convince Republicans to cross over and vote well,
12: for him? Well, I think conceivably, um, I mean, he certainly has some nanny state aspects to him that I think would make conservatives uh, uncomfortable. But I think the immediate impact is much likely to have the opposite effect, where he he dilutes support potentially for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. He could block a path forward for others who are running in the so-called moderate lane, like Buddha Judge uh, Amy Klobuchar, and others. So I think if you're Elizabeth Warren today and you see uh, Michael Bloomberg getting in, you're happy.
2: Mm-hmm. Antoine, you know, being a self-made billionaire, successful business person, you can look at that and say, it's the American dream. Or you can look at that and say, this person is suspect and it seems that this person is suspect is what we're hearing more on the campaign trail. And that isn't comfortable for everyone.
10: I'm not going to criticize him for making money. Um, But let me say four things about Bloomberg. Number one, most people will agree that the political highway is experiencing a traffic jam because (laughs) we have too many people running for president on our side and most of the lanes are filled at this point. The second point is that it's Sunday morning, so I'll say this. There's a political scripture that I reference. that says the road to heaven and the White House runs through South Carolina. Well, he has agreed that he will not participate in the South Carolina primary, where 61% of the people who cast their vote will be African-American. women. Most of the states that follow reflect South Carolina. South Carolina was a launch pad for Barack Obama and a safe haven for Hillary Clinton.
2: Also your home state. Oh, God's country.
10: (laughs) And, And then the third thing, it is the home of the most prominent and powerful African American in the U.S. Congress, Jim Clyburn. And so what Bloomberg is saying by not participating in the South Carolina primary if he gets in, is that I have no interest in what majority of African Americans think in the South and especially the home of Whip. Jim Clyburn. That's where I think he's making a mistake, and I call it the highest act of malpractice any campaign can commit.
7: Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret. What? Well, I mean, there are a lot of reasons why a bid would be complicated, and I think we're not sure yet that he is going to run. Uh, there is no way to secretly check the box in Alabama without people right. finding out. <laughs> uh, but but there, there, the case to be made, if he did pursue it, is that what he's done with his billions of dollars. Uh, is invest in two of the most important issues to Democrats on climate change and on gun control, right, uh, at, that he's got support in Wall Street, he's got some support in Silicon Valley as well, and that uh, when you look at the results of last Tuesday's election, uh, there I- there may be a market of people in the general okay. election, maybe, uh, that would be receptive to a message like his. Uh, but, you know, uh, the uh, There is also an overarching lesson from the 2016 race, which is that when you have a 17-way or an 18-way or a 19-way no. primary, somebody who did not have a chance in a three-way race right. could have a chance. Right. And that is all part of the calculus. You and
10: cannot be the, the push- Democratic nominee without having strong, across-the-board, broad, deep-and-wide support among African-American voters. He does not have that. Right. Jeffrey.
5: But I, I do want to say one thing in his defense, or in the theoretical defense of this candidacy. Unlike the other billionaires, who are really vanity candidates, this is a proven... Election winner. I mean, this is a three-time mayor of New York City, as a Democrat, Republican,
2: uh, and Independent. I mean, I mean, <laughs> he's covered all the bases.
5: Uh, I mean, so so he has overcome a first hurdle. He's actually gone before voters and gotten votes, and by many accounts, had had a largely successful run mm-hmm. as as mayor. So I think it does put him in a slightly different lane than just the pure vanity billionaire fast lane.
7: But it is well, the Biden, but it is the Biden lane, right. and it, and it complicates that contest inextricably. All right. Thanks to all of you for the analysis
4: The way car buying should be.
2: 65 years ago, the very first guest on Face the Nation was Senator Joe McCarthy, a politician who rose to prominence on the audacious claim that communists had infiltrated the U.S. State Department. The hearings and blacklisting that followed are looked back on as a dark period in American history. It serves as a good reminder that it is not entirely new to have this anger, vitriol and divisiveness in our country's politics. And looking back at the world leaders who have appeared on this program through the years, I'm also reminded that upheaval and change are constant, even if they are disorienting. These days, you've never had so many options at your fingertips to quickly receive information or disinformation. Talk is cheap and you can get an opinion just about anywhere. Face the Nation has always been a place for listening to each other, which we all need to do a bit more of in our current climate and for context and perspective. That's what our team here at Face the Nation will continue to try to do each Sunday. And at 65 years old, we're in our prime. We want to wish the United States Marine Corps a very happy birthday. They turned 244 today. We honor all who currently or previously served in the armed forces and their families on this Veterans Day weekend. Thank you all for keeping America safe. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Republican Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana, Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell of California, and National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday.
0: If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan
6: family killings early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus.